anything that you're not prepared for or haven't been asked a question about is a likely point of problem and discontent and regret and frustration and everything else that comes along with it. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, and I've got Mike Malatesta in with me today. He's in the warm state of Wisconsin. All right. Where they're walking around with no shoes on in the middle of the winter. I don't yeah. think that's actually true. But Mike, how are you, man? Good to see you today. I'm good, Jerome. Thanks for having me on your show. And I am in short sleeves, by the way. So You are inside, too. <laughs> <laughs> I am inside. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Yes. Yeah. So thanks for having me on your show. That is a pleasure. So, oh, man, you and I hit it off. And it's funny. We, we met through a mutual connection. Somebody else who exited, David Trent, and yeah. he tagged you and he tagged me. I was like, you're talking about the dream exit. I am fascinated just by those words being combined in a simple sentence. So we jumped on a call and you started telling me about waste and your undergraduate degree was totally unrelated. I was like, hold on, right. man, this is a great story. We need to bring it to the community. And so you jumped on and Today we sit here getting ready to unpack what the dream exit is. And so I guess let's start there with me asking the question, how do you formulate the dream exit? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. It was the culmination or the convergence of a couple of years of me thinking, well, after I sold my second business, I'm thinking to myself, what is the convergence of my unique experiences and skill sets? that could, if put together properly, have the biggest impact on the most people in the most meaningful way. And because people have been coming to me for just business coaching, right? And I had never thought about being a business coach and had never asked to be a business coach. People just kind of came to me. And I liked it, but I just didn't feel like I was really in the sweet spot of where how I could really help them. So I just started thinking about how could I really help them? And ultimately, it came down to a math equation, which is 31 plus 25 plus 2 plus 2 equals 75,000. And that doesn't add up in a normal calculator, but this is how that adds up. 31 years of experience, 25 acquisitions or M&A uh, activities, two founded two companies, sold two companies. And the combination of my time doing all of those things has been about 75,000 hours. And I said, okay, so of the 25 businesses that I was in acquiring or on a team of people acquiring with our own money, not like this in an advisory role or anything like that. So we were super serious about making sure we got this right. I did not come up against one person, one entrepreneur, one business owner who had, in my mind, intentionally prepared to position their business for its maximum value or position themselves for 
maximum meaning after they move away or transition out of their business. So that was number one. Number two, I'm in uh, a number of you know groups like Young Presidents Organization, Vistage, and some others, and my own personal network. I was seeing over and over again business owners and entrepreneurs successful who came to the decision that they wanted to sell their business or someone came to them, Jerome, with a offer, you know, a check, like, and again, no preparation, no intentionality to it. They just figured, oh, okay, now's the time. I'm going to figure it out on my own. And my takeaway from that was there should only be one outcome to anyone who has a successful business and has had it, you know, put their life work into it. And that is when they do want to transition or they do want to exit, it should be a dream exit. And what I was seeing over and over again, and there's plenty of stats about, you know, how four out of five business owners are unhappy with it. whatever the right stat is. I don't know. But my anecdotal experience was nobody that I knew got maximum meaning and maximum value out of their exit. And I said, can I change this? And I'm convinced that I can change this. If people are willing to put some time into this, I can help them change and get a dream exit instead of a nightmare or regret or whatever else. And so that's where it came from. And I just worked very hard putting together a program based on all, like I said, all of my experience. And it's like, you can buy a certification to be an exit planner. They're out there. You know, you can do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. I prefer, well, I think the value of me comes from not having taken a class. It comes from having lived a life. Lived experience. Yeah. That's it. So let's talk about your exits because I think yeah. people are going to say, okay, well, he feels like he's had the dream exit. What were his exits like? And so we believe there's eight exits of a founder. For most people, it starts with leaving, being an employee. Right. Then it becomes chief everything officer, from chief everything officer to supervisor of the frontline workers, from supervisor of the frontline workers to some type of thought leadership product management role where they're out there shaking the trees and making it rain. And then they move from there to probably a true CEO role where people are managing the day-to-day -day for them and they're being yeah. strategic. Now, this is where it kind of gets dicey because people try to skip steps and they don't actually put a board in place and become chairman of the board so that they're detached from the entity in and of itself and they're just doing the board meetings. Right. And then actually get to the place where they have exit number six, which is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that I think most people think about when they talk about an exit. Mm -hmm. So did you go through any of those steps? Cause you talked about a lot of MA. So it doesn't sound like it was all organic growth. And maybe we can break up the two exits just to make it easier for people to follow. Sure. Yeah. So I love the steps and I think there's a lot of validity to those steps. And I do believe I went through many, if not most, or all of those steps maybe not recognizing it the same way that you articulated it, but sure. So let's start with the first one. This was a bootstrap startup, 1992. Me and an operating partner and two other investors cobbled our money together. It was about $150,000. We were able to get a bank loan for about two hundred fifty. dollars on top of that. So we had about $400,000. We started a trucking company to transport wastewater and other types of 
liquid waste from factories and manufacturing facilities. So they're making products, they're using water, the water gets contaminated. It needs to be treated somewhere before it can be recycled into the sewer system and reused. So that's what we were doing. We were finding waste, we were driving there, pumping it onto our truck and hauling it away. So at that time, you know, of course we, we were, we were founders, we were workers. We were, you know, like, like the head chef and chief bottle washer, whatever that is. We, yeah, of course we were doing all of that, you know, sales, execution, billing, hiring, firing, you know, doing. And that was, there was a few years of that, maybe more than a few longer than I probably should have, you know, if I really had mapped out what the progression should look like. But over time, you know, I had that that business for 22 years. So it's a long time. And I'd say it was, it wasn't until around, so I sold that in 2015. It wasn't until around 2010, 2011, when I really started to think about what am I supposed to be doing here? I call it, like in my book, the subtitle is how getting selfish got me unstuck. And so what happened to me was I was so ingrained in the business at the beginning that, and it was working, you know, we were growing, it was working. So I thought what I was doing was the right thing, but turns out it was really, I was really had created sort of a hierarchical, hierarchical, whatever the right word is, where everything, they call it bubbled up in the corporate world. Everything came up to me. And that's how I liked it. That's how I wanted it. Problem was, that was frustrating me. And I was wondering, why are people doing this when it's clearly I'm frustrated by this? And I chose to forget that people do what you ask them to do. They do what they think you want them to do. In the absence of instruction or autonomy or other things, they do what they think you wanted them to do. So it was sort of like leading through osmosis. I was the only one who knew what I wanted, but nobody else did. And so I got what I got. But around 2010, I'd say I was a number of things that I had put in place after having this epiphany about getting selfish to get unstuck. And I can talk about that more if you want. That's where I think I really transitioned into more like a CEO than I had ever been before. And when I really knew, here's how I really knew that I had made it. And when I say I had made it, I don't mean that like I'm a big deal or anything like this. Just as an entrepreneur, I knew I made it when nobody needed me. You know, when you're sitting there and it's like, huh, like nobody's emailing me, nobody's calling me. It's like, you know, is this working? You know, this kind of thing. So there's two things that happen when that happens, I think. One is you can feel like, great, like nobody needs me, right? which is really the freedom that you, you that's what you aspire to as an entrepreneur. But the other part of that, and what I found was very valuable about it is like, okay, so nobody needs me for whatever's being done now. What should I be working on that no one else can do? Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people, if they get to the point, which many don't, I think at least in my experience, Jerome, you can tell me yours, many entrepreneurs and business owners don't get to the point where they're not needed. Because whenever they're not needed, they're like, holy crap, this is scary. I'm going to jump back in and be needed again. So very few get to the point where they're not needed. And then I think even fewer say, okay, so I'm not needed. That Does that mean I go on vacation now all the time? Or does that mean I redirect and I say, how can I continue to bring maximum value to this business, which is my job? 
by doing things that, you know, light me up and only I can do, or I'm, it's, you know, it's the very best use of my time. So I think that's, I'll stop there because I, I that was kind of a lot. See, did I answer the question at least on that first yeah. phase? Yeah. For that first business, it's really interesting because I think most folks spend somewhere between 15 and 30 years getting the thing done. Right. Yeah. And then they're ready to exit at some point in that you, you touched on a point that I try to incorporate into every episode, but uh, sometimes it just doesn't fit. And that's the more valuable you are to the company, the less valuable the company is. It's right. your ability to get out of the way. And you described it as bubbling up, but I thought about it as a bottleneck, right? So you created the bottleneck because everything yep. came to you and you're like, well, why am I in the middle of this? I, we already know what we're supposed to be doing here, but you're giving it to me anyway. And it's just the culture, right? It's a leadership led. And it sounds like you popped the top and created a space where folks could actually step into that void of leadership because you moved out the way for them to do yeah. so. And in doing that, you created space and freedom for yourself to be more strategic and actually be the true CEO instead of an operating officer, which is where most people who run companies never actually get out of. And it's the thing that keeps their evaluation down because yeah. they can't actually sell that to a strategic buyer because they don't want to buy a job. They want to buy a business that's operating without them being there. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, I think it was a phenomenal explanation of the progress that we go through in our journey from, you know, leaving on being an employee to truly becoming an owner of our company and then being able to maximize the value and hopefully find some meaning on the backside of maximizing that value. And so what got you interested in selling it? Because most people don't even know you can sell a business. So like, how'd you get exposed to selling a business? And then how'd you begin that journey of actually exiting the first business? Yeah. So, well, as I mentioned, we had made a number of acquisitions while we were building the business. So we had an organic and acquisition strategy. We wanted to grow if we could, 50-50, you know, grow the business organically every year, try to grow the business by acquisition, because when you want to enter new markets and stuff, at least in the business that we were in, it's kind of tough to start from scratch. You know, you don't, you, there's infrastructure that's needed. There's relationships that are needed. There's a lot of regulatory things in this industry. And so it helped to have something that was already permitted as opposed to starting from scratch. So that was an intentional uh, part of our growth strategy. But during, you know, having made those acquisitions, I got, you know, exposed to and familiar with like where the value drivers are inside of businesses, at least the way we were looking at them. And so I thought, okay, if that's the way we're looking at our businesses, it's probably the way buyers will be eventually be looking at ours as well. And so the very first thing we did which was unusual for a company of our size at the time, but we started at least 10 years before we sold, having our financials uh, audited, not reviewed, but audited. And again, that was an expense that most people would look at and say, well, I don't need that. And you, I'm not saying you do need it, but when you, it did two things. One, I thought we had a good CFO. She was, I thought, super competent, but my understanding of the work and the work product 
was limited to, you know, our company basically. So I didn't know how good or not good we really were. So by going through an audit process, which is way more than your CPA, just, I'm sorry, your CPA or your CFO, just turning over information to someone and it looks okay. So they, they review it and say, it's okay. An audit was much deeper than that, where they would, you know, actually talk to people. They would talk to me and they would talk to all these other people about what was happening in the business. They would talk to our customers. They would talk to, and so it was one, it was like, okay, proof that we were serious about the financial controls and the financial uh, results of our business. And two, it was reaffirming that we had the right people and the right systems and the right processes in place to produce reliable financial results. Because when you do go to sell a business, there's a lot of things that get looked at, but man, oh man, if you're, yeah, right. <laughs> but if they can't trust your numbers, if a buyer can't trust your numbers or buyers in a process can't trust your numbers, they dig further and they dig further and they dig further. And then right away, you're kind of on the defensive instead of being on the offensive. And I want to teach people to be, when it comes that time, you want to be on the offensive. So that's one thing that we definitely started earlier than we probably had to, but I think it paid off in the end for sure. The second thing was, as you mentioned, and I had alluded to, you can't be the tallest building I call it tallest building in your business. If you're the tallest building in your business, you're not, you know, no one's going to give you a dream exit if you're the tallest building. Unless you have just something that no one else has in the whole world wants. And there are very few of those. So I like to teach people to be, you know, build the strongest foundation. That's your job. Build the strongest foundation a foundation upon which other tall buildings can be built, but not yours. You're the tallest building for so long in the business because you have to be. And then your job is to build a strong foundation instead of being the tallest building. So that's another thing. Make sure that you have people who have in your organization, and it depends on size and everything, but generally speaking, other people have to have P&L responsibility for their operation. They have to know how to budget. They have to know how to run a division or whatever, however you split things up in your business. It's super important. And I think the third thing is, third of many, is you have to have your, how you operate, your SOPs or your systems and processes or whatever you call them documented so that, you know, when people come into your organization new or when uh, potential buyers looking through the due diligence, they're like, yeah, I wonder how do they do this, this, and this. It's all there. This is how we do it. Because my experience with buyers, whether they be strategic buyers or whether they be financial buyers, they don't want to work that hard after they buy you. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's not what they want. They want your business to work hard for them. That's what they want. And the more things that you can check off as in their eyes being that works, you know, we're not going to have to fix anything or put out any dumpster fires or anything like that, the better the value is going to be for you, at least in my experience. And so did you find on the backside of your exit that pretty much everybody that you spent time with on a daily basis vanished? Well, no, because that first, so no in the first case, because I did stay on to make sure 
Oh, that's but I stayed on. I didn't have to stay on. It wasn't a requirement for me to stay on. But I'll tell you what, when I told everybody that we were going to sell the business and I gave them the reasons why it's good for them, because they didn't care why it was good for me, really. I mean, they were happy, I guess, but really they cared why it's good for them. I did not want to leave that business telling them why it was good for them and then leave it up to chance that that actually happened, Jerome. And that's a personal decision. People can decide you know, how they want to handle that. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong. For me, it was right. I was going to have a position of influence in the business and I wanted to maximize my influence in the business to make sure that we lived up to the obligations we made to, um, to the team about why this is going to be good for them. And I can't say that, you know, we, I was a hundred percent, you know, on that, but I'd say nineties for sure. And that was important to me. I wanted to make sure that these people who had done so much for me got, you know, the opportunities and everything else that we suggested might be possible as a result of going in, the, in this direction. So you folded in as like senior vice president of this or president of that. Yeah. Vice president. Yeah. I was a, they called our company a platform. You know, they were going to establish a new division. And so we were the platform for that company, meaning we were essentially the whole company, you know, cause it was new. And so, yeah, I was the vice president of the region in which my company operated. Correct. And most people that I talk to post-exit who are outside, did you have an earnout, or you, you just came in as an employee and you got all your cash up front? Yeah, there was no earnout. Nice. So Which is another folks, thing I want to help people get. Yeah. Of yeah to all the... They're like, oh, you can't get maximum value if you get it all up front. But uh, it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> that's, that's definitely not true. And so you literally were working to make sure that you could influence what happened to the folks on the backside because there was no real financial incentive for you outside of whatever the paycheck was or whatever. That's correct. I think there were stocks there. So hmm. I see some people who say, I want to make sure it's good for my folks, but they also have some financial incentive in order to make sure it's good for their folks. You're the first person that I've actually heard say that I just went in because this was I wanted to make good on that promise. Did you find that your partner was, I guess, honest in what they offered was going to be what happened and you didn't have to really struggle or wrestle with them to deliver on the promise or? Yeah. So this is a public company that was, you know, maybe a couple thousand employees at the time. We were around 150. So what I will say is that the people who were who I negotiated with and were the primary people who I interacted with while I was there, yes is the answer. There were, you know, when you have a lot of other people there who weren't part of the discussions and aren't part of your day-to-day and stuff, sometimes there were some challenges. There's always, no matter what, there's always going to be some communication that comes out and you're like, gosh. I wish, I wish we had said that a different way, or I wish we had had a conversation about that before we send it out like that. So there were occasions, Jerome, but I feel like 
I was very fortunate that way. Yeah, they lived up to what they said they were going to do. And I'll just add that that's important too. Like, as I mentioned, I wanted to make sure that the promises we made to our people were, were promises that were largely kept. But I also wanted to make sure that the promises that I made to the buyer about this business were also kept. And I think that's sometimes missing in these things too. As a seller, you think, well, once I sell, it's the buyer's problem. And while that's, I guess, technically true. Contractually it is, yeah. Yeah, I think as a, to me, as a seller, my job is to make sure this works out really good for the buyer. Because if it works out really good for the buyer, they are going to appreciate it more. They are going to try to model it with future stuff. And they're always going to talk well about me and my team. Whereas if it doesn't go that way, the opposite of those things, what I just described, typically happens. And I find that there's a lot of sellers who also, you know, because they didn't get the dream exit or they have some type of regret or whatever, they end up being a real pain to the buyer. And maybe that's justified sometimes, like in the case that you were alluding to or the buyer maybe doesn't live up to its expectations or its obligations. But sometimes I think business owners want to sell a business and take the money, but still think they own all the stuff. Yeah. And well. <laughs> it don't work like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. So you know, I want to get people not only ready to sell their business, but I want to get them ready for what it's like after you sell your business. And one of the things that I think is so important is make sure your buyer has a good experience with your business. Don't blame a bad experience in your business on them. Mm -hmm. It's your job is to make sure it goes well. Whether you stay or whether you leave, to me, you want to have some mental skin in the game of making sure that, that they can look back on their experience with you and be like, that was a good one. You know, business is business, stuff can happen. But the experience itself, I want people to, to know that, to come back, to think about it and say, that was a good experience with Jerome. I'm glad we did that. And he's, did everything he said he was going to do. And I can't ask for more than that. Yeah. I think the reputation matters almost as much as the check. And definitely there's a whole lot of people who are like, Oh yeah, it's their problem now. Shrug a shoulder shrug. And then they talk poorly about the people who bought it. Oh, these guys don't know what they're doing. Yeah. These gals just took my business and screwed it all up. And now it's not working. And Maybe I should buy it back. And I'm just like, yeah. right. It, you know, and, they, and sometimes stuff can happen. I mean, if you prepare to do things the right way, the likelihood that you're going to have some of these feelings that are negative, certainly not dreamlike, you know, they're greatly diminished if you spend a little time getting ready for it first. You know, the thing that made me feel great was five years after. I sold the business. I was no longer with the business, had nothing to do with it. I reached out to the CEO. I just sent him an email. I'm like, Steve, I just need to know, was this, you were five years into this business. Was this a good experience for your company? And I doubt any CEO gets an email like that from a seller, but it was important for me, not that I could do anything about it at that point, but it was important for me to hear how he was thinking about it all these years later. And I don't know why, Jerome, but it was just important to me. And, you know, he had nice things to say, but what was even more, what's been even more rewarding about that is the company's done fantastic, better than, you know, it 
could probably better. I'm going to say it's done better than it could do if I had remained in charge of it and was still running that business. I'm convinced of that. And that's exciting. Yeah. That's really exciting because I think every founder wants the business to continue to exist. They want it to grow. They want it to excel for those who think about it like a, a kid or a baby, right? Yeah. Sure. For those who are like, oh, I want to be the greatest thing that ever happened to it, then of course, you know, they're going to process it a little differently. But for yeah. those who actually desire for it to flourish post their ownership, I think that's the ideal situation. And so you sell it, you fold in, and then do you take your proceeds and start buying stuff in a post acquisition portfolio, or do you just kind of sit on the money? Yeah. So I guess a blend of, I don't feel like I'm sitting on anything, but so I did after my non-compete was expired, which was three years, I met general partner at a private equity firm who a friend of mine introduced me to, and they wanted to establish a platform in the waste industry that was similar to the platform that, or the company that I had helped build. And that idea intrigued me because one of the things that, you know, when you talk about meaning, right, one of the things that that you look at after you've been in a business for a long time is like, okay, what now? What am I going to do to get meaning? And I had started a podcast and I was doing a bunch of other things. So I had meaning in my life already. But when these guys came around, I thought to myself, well, this could be a great way for me to really apply those high, what I consider the high level things that I learned as an entrepreneur to do something meaningful to, you know, build a new company, help this private equity firm achieve its goals and allow me to just do the work I like to do. So I was able to partner up, be, be a, what's called an operating partner with this firm. And so they allowed me great freedom to find companies that we could buy, put together, establish a management team. And I was fortunate to bring some people who I'd worked with over the years into that that fold. And, and it was just a, a whole new good experience for me to work with a new partner in this private equity firm, but also to give people that had, you know, some at least that had worked with me an opportunity to come in and they're much younger than I am. So maybe 20 years younger. And it's like, Hey guys, here's a chance for us to build something great. And for you to actually have a meaningful piece of the upside in this business. And that was very attractive to me. And so that was something I said, yeah, that's going to provide me with meaning on a number of levels, you know, using my skill set, hopefully on a financial level, but, and then on, you know, partnering with these younger folks to give them a taste of what it's like to build a business and be successful. And fortunately that's what happened at least while well, it was financially successful for sure. I had a really good relationship with the private equity firm, which I continue to maintain. And I'm now partners with and or very good friends with the people that we had brought in to manage the business. And they're all doing great, like better, I think better from having gone through the experience than they otherwise would. So I don't know, that's a good outcome outstanding outcome and i think it creates a space for them to actually have a dream exit assuming they get a piece because a lot of times when they come in as operating partners they might get five or seven percent or something like that so 
it was meaningful though. And in three years, you know, you walk away with, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in your pocket. That's with no investment, you know, just your skill set and your time. That's not bad. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, AKA the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. <laughs> nice little bonus. No risk. Yeah. I mean, outside of non-performance, which right. you have direct impact over and influence. What's really cool about that is you actually started partnering with people who do the business, but you utilize your knowledge set to basically buy companies in this post acquisition portfolio. And even though it wasn't completely yours, you had ownership in it because you partnered with people who had the capital to maybe buy things that you wouldn't have been able to buy on your own. I see right. a lot of people post exit who go into things and places that they have no real understanding, no competitive advantage. They do it with all their own money and then they end up losing it and they don't understand why that didn't work out. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you successful once you think you can easily convince yourself you'd be successful at anything. And I'm not immune to that. Like, you know, bought a couple of properties and I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. This is going to work out fine. And I had never bought commercial or industrial property outside of property I owned in, in the business, you know, that we were actually using. And so it was new for me. And, you know, they one that worked out and another one that was horrible. It was a really terrible decision on my part. But I learned from that and a lot of the other investments that I've, that I've made since then into a lot of businesses, over a hundred businesses, but I'm never the lead person on those unless they're in my industry or I'm with a partner and we're, I know that person and that person's going to run the business. So I follow a lead. I find someone who has the experience in this industry or in venture capital, for example, or private equity. And I trust them to be the ones who find the right things. And then I just follow on and I like that. I'm, you know, where it's not me saying, well, I'm going into the car detailing business and I'm going to create some, you know, monster company out of it. And I've never detailed a car well in my life, but I'll learn. I'll get it. How hard can it be? How hard can it be? Well, famous last words. It can be very hard. Yeah. And it can and be very, very frustrating to be all these things. So I try to find a lead and then I follow the lead. I let the lead be the person who I trust. And I think that's, I mean, it's worked out a lot. I have a lot that, you know, it's, there haven't been an outcome yet. So I don't know ultimately how well that strategy is going to work, but it makes me feel like a person who can support entrepreneurship and business growth without having to, you know, have every deal be something I'm a hundred percent responsible for having, you know, vetted and diligenced and all of that stuff.
I think at times it becomes overwhelming, but I think the bigger thing is just, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I think there's so many folks out there who are over confident, I call it unconscious incompetence. Mm, and yeah. so they're off doing things and they're setting themselves up for failure. And it, it's going to take three, five, maybe 10 years for them to find out that they were doomed from the start because they didn't have the right people on the team to help them avoid the quicksand that they were getting ready to step in. And yeah. once you're in, you know, the only way out is for somebody to help you. And uh, the person who's helping you gets to decide how much they charge you and <laughs> how much they actually help you. Yeah. That. That's a great point. Once you're in, you're in. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I feel with that one property. But anyway, that's how life goes. <laughs> well, with real estate, a lot of times you can, if you have enough money, you can just ride it out and eventually the market will save you. But that's not always true. Thanks for the pep talk. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So was were the 25, I think you said 25 M&A type yeah. experiences. Was that with the venture? So. And I think so it was 20 said, on the first side and five on the second, something like that, bro. Okay. And so let's talk about the difference between private equity and venture, because I think a lot of folks consider oh, sure. them to be the same thing. And so can we, what's, yeah, there's nuance there. Yeah. So this is how I break it down. May not be the only way or the best way, but this is how I break it down. Private equity firms invest in mature companies. Usually cash flow positive companies, although there are some distressed private equity firms, but private equity firms are lazy groups of capital, smart, very smart people, but lazy. They don't want to do, most of them don't want to do any operational stuff at all if they don't have to. They want to buy a good business, pay what the business is worth or a little less and grow the business modestly, but continuously over time, pay down the debt. So they buy with you know, with as much debt as they can feel as they can handle, pay all the debt down over, you know, five years or so, give or take, improve the business modestly, and basically take an arbitrage on the multiple that the business will get as a result of the improvements that have been made in it over what they paid. So if they buy a $10 million business or pay $10 million for a business, and let's just say that's five times the cash flow of the business or the EBITDA, some people call it. And they buy that with, you know, five million in debt and five million of equity. They pay down the five million in debt. They grow the business to 20 million over five years. And the EBITDA cash flow, just say it moves up to four, four million. And they sell it for six times instead of five times. So they put 25, they put $5 million to work and they walked away with $25 million. That's how that works. So that's private equity. Venture capital invests usually in businesses that are early stage. They may be growing quickly, but they're not profitable. Oftentimes they don't actually care about profit. Although in this environment, 2024, 2023, they do care about uh, profit, but they don't care as much about profit as they do velocity, sales velocity, subscriber velocity, anything that's velocity they care about because they're not looking to put $5 million in and get $25 million. 
mm-hmm. five years down the road, they want to put five million in and get five hundred million five years down the road or ten years down the road. So it's a different. It's a, definitely a private equity wants to win on every deal that they do. Venture capital knows they will not win on every deal that they do. They're really looking to win really big on some of the deals that they do, and I think that's the difference. Is that your experience as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I just think so many people only see the upside with venture. Mm. And so they're placing these bets and they don't realize one in 10, one in 25 make the rest of the portfolio balance out or the rest of the fund balance out. And they're trying to pick the companies that they're thinking is going to go to the moon and there's no diversification. And so if they hit, which is highly unlikely, then boom. But if they don't, then, I mean, they literally just put the money in the slot machine. It's kind of like the casino, right? Some people love the thrill of, you know, going all in on something. But typically, the only you only hear about the wins. You don't hear about the losses. And venture is kind of like that. I think it's I think it's nutty for most people to go in on a venture deal that they vetted solely by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, in an industry that they don't have deep experience. In an industry, right. Because that's a really, that's really tough. It's tough for the people who do this full time. I mean, Andreessen Horowitz, go look at their record. You know, do they have some major, major, huge wins? Yes. Have they made billions of dollars? Yes. But look at all the deals that they invested in, big money that went to zero. There's, and I can't have big deals go to zero. I'm not in that, right? I mean, most people cannot have big deals go to zero. It will change your balance sheet for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll change a lot. <laughs> it'll take the shine off of a venture capital object really quick. But I like venture. I like supporting early stage companies. I think it's, as an entrepreneur, I think it's a really great way to help people the same way that I've been helped over the years, although we never took venture money, but still. So I like it, but I only like it if I'm following a lead and the, if the investment goes to zero, I'm like, well, no biggie. But you're investing knowing that it can go to zero. Absolutely. It's knowing not... that it probably I, it probably will go to zero. It's, yeah. So but on the off chance that it doesn't, we're going to the moon, baby. It's like crypto. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the hope. And so, like I said, I, I haven't gotten all the outcomes yet, so we'll see how that strategy works. So, but let's talk about that. So how do you pick, I'll call them the fund manager, right? How mm-hmm. do you pick the leads that you're going to place the capital with in order to participate in these early stage companies? Because- I mean, if they're not profitable and you're looking at the number of subscribers they're getting, which can be manipulated, or you're looking mm-hmm. at pick a thing, right? Like how, how, how do you know that the manager is somebody that you feel comfortable placing capital with? Cause I think that's where most people struggle. Yeah. Most. So for me, it's been track record. And I have three main venture capital funds or syndicates that I've dealt with. And one is run by a guy named Jason Kalkanis, who's pretty well-known. He's very well-known. If you are familiar with the All In podcast, I don't know if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. that, but he's one of the hosts on that show. And I got hooked up with Jason a long time ago. 
well, he, he was well known then, but he's way more well known now. The podcast does well. <laughs> yeah, this podcast, yeah, this podcast does, yeah, the, the podcast does really well. So he was one I found early that had a great track record and it was easy to get in on, on opportunities with him. What does a good track record mean? Well, he had, I can't remember all of the companies, but, you know, he was in Uber, Airbnb, like, I don't remember all the ones that he was in early, long time ago, but what I mean by it is he had a record of success. You could tell that he was like super diligent on what he was doing. He had the right network of people. So you knew that stuff that was coming to him was probably going to be the better stuff, not maybe not the great stuff, but the better stuff. And he had success kind of written on him. At least that's what I thought and continued to think. So that's what track record meant to me with him. Now, we, we talked about the dream exit, and I've probably spent too much time talking about valuations and what to do with money after you get it. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned meaning, and very rarely do people talk about meaning post-exit. Uh, it's all about how much money you can make, and then people just kind of vanish into the darkness, and right. nobody else is around unless the person stays on with the company, which some people equate to being purg in purgatory, but right. you had a good experience. Tell me, how do you help people with the meaning piece of the pie with the dream exit process or system that you put together? Yeah, um, it's it's going to sound so simplistic that you're going to laugh at me, but it's really this simple. I ask them questions that they're not asking themselves and that no one else is asking them. And we work through the answers on to those questions because... The answers to those questions are what's going to create the roadmap or the playbook toward making sure that when we get to the point of transitioning this business, you're not going to be worried about what you're going to do afterwards. We're already going to have that mapped out. Now, is it going to be a set in stone plan forever? Probably not. But it's going to be something that right off the bat, you know, this is what you've established that you want. Here's what it's going to look like. We have a plan to, to get moving toward it and create it even before you've transitioned the business. And we're just going to keep working on that. And as you do, new things are going to come to you. Byproducts are going to be created off of whatever it is you've, you've chosen to do. And that's where the power of meaning is going to be maximized in your post-exit life. Too many people, in my opinion, think that if... I have money, I will have meaning because I can buy whatever meaning I want. And that may work for some people, but I think yeah, for most people, it actually compounds the problem. And, you know, when you're going through a transaction before the money's exchanged hands, everyone on your team, your investment banker, your accountant, your wealth advisor, you know, anybody in your inner circle, they're very excited for you about the money. And they're all laser focused on making sure you get the most money. So that's great. You got that covered. I'm not sure that's the outcome you always get, but that's everyone is laser focused on that. No one is saying, no, 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 no one in that group is saying to you, so after you get the money, what are you going to do? They just assume that yeah. after you get the money, it's going to be like, well, your life is like going to be great. Unicorns and rainbows. You're going to be great. Right. And I want to make sure that I'm asking people those questions. So it's as simple as that, Jerome. I just ask them questions that no one else is asking them. And I make sure that they have 
an answer to it. And regardless of what they want to do after, like say they want to stay or say they have to stay. Yeah. That's a great thing. People go, oh, well, they told me it's going to be great. I just, they love what I'm doing. They love my company. They're going to leave me alone. Oh, I'm going to get to do what I want and it's going to be great. And I say, okay. So that's what they're, on their side, they're saying that. And I believe what they're saying. On your side, you're hearing that and you believe what you're hearing. Here's sometimes the trouble. What they're saying, they believe. Their belief of it, though, is so different than your belief of what they're saying. Yeah. And they don't understand that because they're not you. And they're not asking you, if, you know, to break it down and make sure. And on your side, you're hearing everything they're saying. You have no idea what what they're saying actually means yeah. to them. You're just assuming whatever they're saying, whatever you're hearing, and the way you process it, it's got to be the way that they mean it. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. And oftentimes, the very first you know day, week, month, something that they said they're going to do, like, we're not going to change anything. And in their mind, they're like, well, of course, we're going to change the payroll and we're going to change the health insurance. We're going to change it. But that's not really changing the business, right? And they're right. From their perspective, that's not changing the business. That's just smart business, right? But they don't tell you that because you never ask. And then on your side, you're like, well, I thought you said you weren't going to change anything. This is change. This is meaningful change to the business. And then right off the bat, it's like you start shaking your head at each other, right? Well. If someone had asked you the questions of what do you think it means for you to stay on after this? What are they telling you? Tell you know, telling me no change, all this stuff. Okay. So how are you interpreting that? And let's start talking about it because you want to make sure that you go into it with your eyes wide open. And too many people go into it with their wide, eyes not wide open. Same with escrow, the same with earnout, same with all that stuff. And I'm not saying you should never do escrow or, well, you're always going to do escrow, but you should never do earnout. I'm not saying that at all. I just want you to be, be prepared for what that actually means because anything that you're not prepared for or haven't been asked a question about is a likely point of problem and discontent and regret and frustration and everything else that comes along with it. Again, in my experience, which may not be true for everyone, it probably isn't true for everyone. That's probably the best way I've understood this, heard this explained. So that people can yeah. understand it. Because when we think we're communicating, we're often not. Uh, we're saying words, but they're not being interpreted the way that people are going to be happy with the outside, the outcome on the other side of the right. transaction. And the person's like, well, I told you I was going to do it. And you're like, oh, he kind of did. And we typically only see this type of stuff in like marriages, right? Mm. Romantic relationships. But when it comes to these transactions and you're changing ownership and you're changing control, that's when I think things get really messy because somebody basically ceded their control in exchange for dollars. And that's why for a lot of people, I think staying after the transaction is a nightmare. But yeah, for a nightmare. other people, you know, if they actually have the conversations and they do some premarital counseling, they might have a better understanding of where each other's coming from and what to expect on the other side of saying I do. So, yeah. Well, even if I just chime in here, even if you are going to leave right away, which is fine, you still want to make sure that, that you, you talk the same thing 
you, you know, you heard what you heard was not two different things on the buyer because you got to make sure the buyer has good experience with your business. And two, let's make sure we don't walk away and alienate everyone who's worked with you for so long because they're like, what happened to Jerome? Like he just is gone. We don't hear from him anymore because their lives, you meant something to them, meant something to you. And I've seen people walk away and be like, I'm just done with this, this business. And I think that's fine. If this business is killing you, that is so fine, but don't kill these, these relationships with these people. Don't do that because they have to live with the decision you made and they deserve to get something from you for that. They deserve maybe not a relationship forever, but they deserve a relationship at least during the transition period to make sure that they know that you care about them. This is good, Mike. I, I think the dream exit is something that everybody should strive for. For those who want to learn more about the way that you help them get ready for a dream exit, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, thanks. The best place to go is to my website, which is dreamexit.com. You can also get there with my name, Mike Malatesta.com, M-A-L-A-T-E-S-T-A. -E you go there, you can find out what all the things that I'm up to, including the Dream Exit. You can get some free resources there about the program. You can connect with me and schedule a call and we can talk about it without, there's no obligation or anything. I'm the least hard sell person out there because I'm doing this to make a difference. That's what I'm doing this for. And I just want to make sure that this stat, you know, that 80% of business owners regret having sold their business or the amount of preparation they put into it or whatever. I want to put a dent in that stat. And there is a way for successful business owners to transition their business for maximum value and to get themselves ready for maximum meeting. But it's got to start at some point before you want to sell your business. That's my opinion. Well, I think and I it's, think it's correct. I don't yeah. know anybody who successfully, who exited successfully that didn't prepare for it. And when I say successfully, they actually had the exit that they wanted to have versus right. like somebody else dictating the terms to them. Now, Mike, I, I guess I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question before we end the show. Did you have help? Like, how'd you figure this out? Well, yeah, I had, I had lots of help. Um, like which part, the dream exit part or some of the yeah, stuff? For, you well, in your exits, right? Like getting ready for your exits and having yeah. a plan for the oh, exits. Yeah. Okay. So real quick, this, I should have mentioned this. When, so for the first one, I got an unsolicited offer and I had, you know, 20 or so acquisitions under my belt at that time, as I mentioned. And so I was like, I can do this. I can be my own investment banker here. Cause I had had uh, a number of other people contact me and not just con not contact, like call you on the, like people think, oh, pe private equity is calling me all the time. They're not calling, they don't care about you. They're just trying to get an appointment to see if maybe, you know, you fit their criteria and, and you probably don't. So. If you call, if, if you know, a lot of people say, I don't need to prepare for my business. People are calling me all the time asking me if I want to sell my business. Well, of course they are. Just like people are trying to sell you copiers and people are trying to do all kinds of stuff. So anyway, I tried to, I, I thought I would, so I had another company or uh, this was this, they were both strategics. I basically set up 
a, a process between the two of them, myself, and you know, got to the point where I picked one. So I was feeling pretty smart about myself, Drew, and and I was prepared. Like I said, my financials were good. I was prepared. So, but here's where I really messed up on that first one, and I don't recommend anybody doing what I did, running their own process. And this is what I teach in the Dream Exit. You need someone who whose number one skill set is to make sure that all the dealings with the prospective buyers and finding the prospective buyers is managed. So we were getting pretty close down the line and I had a situation that I can't go into the details on, but I had a situation where I had to come up with money to cover an expense that would escalate if I sold the business in a change of control. So I mentioned this to them, which was a big mistake. I wouldn't, you know, I would never do that if I was. They don't want any and, risk. And, and that manifested itself in a reduction in the price sort of at the last minute of a significant amount. Not enough of an amount to make me say, this is not something I want to do anymore, but enough where I was like, ouch, that was a mistake. Yeah. So it cost me $4 million. And that was so dumb. Like that was just my ego getting the best of me, right? And then relaxing sort of near the end, thinking, they're my friends. We're buddies now. Yeah. We're <laughs> and we were friendly, but there's a big difference between. So I, I don't want that to ever happen to anybody uh, again, whether it's $400 or 4000 or 400 thousand or whatever. I don't want that to happen to anybody. So then on the second one, we, we had an opportunity to sell the business without a process or anything. And when I say process, it's basically going out to a wider group of people trying to assess and attract interest rather than just a couple of competitors or whatever. So we ended up hiring an, an investment bank to help us with that. And and investment bankers, you know, they only work on certain size companies generally, but there are other layers of people who can negotiate sales for you. And that was, you know, so well done. So well done that I learned the other part of what I didn't learn the first time was, okay, you know, control the message. Make sure that Every question that gets asked goes through a matrix before it gets answered. Quick matrix, but a matrix before it gets answered. So you're not just making the mistake I made where it's like, hey, we're friends. You ask me a question, not only will I answer it, but I'll go on and on and on answering, you know, providing you way more than what you asked for. Mm -hmm. So it was great learning experience for me that I've now, you know, incorporated into the advice that I give people when I work with them. Like, this is how it should be done. You, once you get into a process or once you sign a letter of intent or you want to make sure that that deal gets done and doesn't get changed. Okay. You want to make sure it gets done and doesn't get changed. And if you don't have someone helping you through that process, it can be very, very difficult. Selling a business is, takes a long time. Even when you're prepared, it takes a long time. It can be very disruptive to the other things that you're supposed to be doing. It's, it can be very frustrating. It's hard to keep a secret from so many people that you're, you know, you're looking at selling the business. So it can be very lonely. These are all the things that I help people with when it comes to making sure they're ready 
for this, because as I said before, the other people they're working with and people that are working that are working with them at the company or their family, they just don't know. They're just not going to ask the questions. They're not going to ask the questions that I'm going to ask. And so that's a really big part of what I do. I just ask the right questions and make sure you have good answers for them. So good. Mike, thank you for being on the Dreamcatchers podcast, man. This was so insightful. And I think anybody out there who's questioning if they're ready for an exit probably has to go back to the drawing board because if you're questioning whether or not you're ready for an exit, you heard some stuff here that I know you're not doing. And these things are going to be very important for you to do if you want to have the exit that is a dream. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your wisdom. No, you're welcome. The exit you deserve. That's what I'll, that's the one thing I put on there. One fine point I'll put on there, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been so much fun. You're good. You're real good at this. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real. <laughs>